Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <coughs> Hi, Roger, it's Brian. Um, look, mate, an unbelievable opportunity has presented itself for us. We've been asked to speak to a lot of people at the Podcast Stop Festival at the Kentish Town Forum on February the 13th, 2021 at 2pm. I'll be there. I think you should too. Okay, cheers, Rog. Bye. Hello, Brian. It's Roger here. Um, so that's the Podcast Stop Festival at Kentish Town Forum at 2pm on Saturday, February the 13th, 2021 to speak to a lot of people. Okay, mate, well, that sounds like uh, it'll be loads of fun, and I really can't see anything going wrong at all. Okay, mate, see you there. Bye-bye. Brian and Roger, live at the O2 Forum Kentish Town for the podcast Stop Festival on Saturday the 13th of February. Tickets are available at livenation.co.uk and ticketmaster.co.uk. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and by my side today are my colleagues Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. And rock expert, David, David Stubbs. Stubbs. How do you do? <laughs> David, before we start, just tell the world why you are known as rock as expert, David Stubbs. The rock expert, yeah. It goes back to uh, November the 22nd, or 23rd, I should say, of 1997. Yeah. Early on Sunday morning, this would have been, I just got this call from a geezer called Barry, who worked at The Observer. Oh, fuck, what's this about? You know, and I was pretty woozy, you know, I'd had a skinful, as per, and, uh, you know, my head was a bit fuzzy. And he just <laughs> said, and, um, they've just found out, um, Michael Hutchins, in excess, he's died. I was like, oh. <laughs> we need some sort of like background, some context. We're putting the items to bed. We're putting the piece to bed now. We obviously, you know, for the Sunday edition. Um, what do you know about Michael Hutchins? <laughs> no. So, yeah. What do you know? I mean, like, you know, do you know? Was he? You know, what kind of animal was? What kind of rock and roll animal? Did, did he? You know, did he drink a lot? Did he do a lot of drugs? Drugs? Oh, I don't know. Not, not as far as I know. You know. <laughs> all about in excess. <laughs> so the next morning, you know, and I forget the call has even existed, the next morning I go out and get the Observer, and there it is on the fucking front page, rock expert David Stubbs <laughs> says Michael Hutchins never took drugs. <laughs> 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 oh my fucking God. Well, don't worry, nobody will notice. 
everybody notice. <laughs> everybody reads the fucking Observer, it turns out. You know, it's like Kramer's lawyer in Seinfeld. This is the worst year of my many humiliations. It's stuck ever since, but what can you do? I, I really enjoyed that little excerpt. I mean, I think that what's nice about it is, I mean, as Neil will testify, getting good copy out of Ozzy Osbourne is kind of like getting the blood out of a stone, you know, and I really got him to talk a bit there, you know, as I think that's my brilliant interviewing, laid-back interviewing <laughs> technique, I think. Turkeys and vultures, man. You, yeah, yeah. You crack that open, man. I'll have, to, I'll have to tell you my interview with Ginger Baker, actually, for the next oh. rock excerpt, David Stubbs. Yeah, that's oh. a little bit less loquacious, put it that way. It's because I know, I listened to that all the way through when I was researching the, uh, hmm. the for, for Black Sabbath for the last episode, and I, I'm just sitting there listening to it, going, "Oh, I know he means my mate," but <laughs> it just reminded me of the absolute fucking mundane shit you come out with when you interview people. <laughs> oh, that obviously yeah. just immediately gets cut, but that's the goal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who knew that Ozzy Osbourne sat down with his family with some Linda McCartney sausages? That's what people mm. really want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Anyway, that's why. I am rock expert David Stubbs. Mm, and you forevermore you shall be, David. <laughs> Good. Anyway, the pop and the interesting things that have occurred of late. There must be loads of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been really dramatic of late, hasn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, can I just use this as usual, not to say anything pop and interesting, and just use it as a kind of confessional booth, really? Um, I don't, oh, come no, on. not confessional booth. You know, I don't speak to adults anymore. So chart music is my sole chance to speak to adults instead of my bloody kids. So let me just yeah. have a moan. I've got a wasp. Go well, I've got a wasp's nest, right? Um, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, man. And it's been here since summer. I looked at a pest controller, but then I had, I had that usual paroxysm of how much? Because it was going to be like a yeah. quid. Bought some powder. Which kind of worked, but I think they're starting to develop a taste for it now. And um, right. cold frosts can't kill them. What's going on? It's this wasp's nest that just won't die. I'm almost proud of them, but I'm also cognizant if the, the if a new weather-resistant kind of winter wasp is possible, then is the future worth proceeding with? And, and no, we're that, fucked up. And, and they crawl into the house to die. It's like that Civil War scene in Gone with the Wind, but with fucking Jasper <laughs> Bastards at the moment. Um, so there's that going on. I'm also among the non-furloughed, looking at the furloughed with envy and wonder. Um, no. And I'd feel remiss if I didn't express solidarity with my teaching brethren, if I didn't say, fucking hell, what happened to all those long holidays I used to read about in the Daily Mail about teachers? <laughs> That's just not happened this year. Um, and things have got so desperate that this... Um, the other week I downloaded a meditation app. So, Oh, God. I know, it's, the, it's, it's a rocky road. If the next time I come on chart music... I just say stuff like, hey, guys, it's time you took a long soak in Lake U. Then it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, time, it's time for an intervention at that point. And you're going to need to drag me to a cabin or something. <laughs> but I am teaching about interesting stuff. I'm teaching, like, um, music history, basically. So Ooh. my weekends are spent listening to things like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong. And, and you know, oh, I, I really? cannot moan about that. You know, and no. I was teaching about Alan Freed this week, and uh, you know, just fantasize that time travel thing. You know, when you look, when you look at, I don't know, a picture of Duke Ellington at the Savoy in the thirties, or you look at the bill for an Alan Freed rock and roll road show, you do just start dreaming about time travel and what you'd go back mm. to. I think musically, if I could just choose one, I would go see an Alan Freed rock and roll road show from the mid fifties because the bills are just nuts. It's like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, just. You know, and you can tell it's not, they're not going to hang around doing fucking solos. It's going to be like 10 minutes on and then they're off. 
Um, yeah. yeah, that would be my dream, absolute dream uh, time travel uh, in, in musical terms. We'll be back to the 50s to see an Alan Freed rock and roll roadshow, but who knows how segregation would work with an Asian? Where do we fit in all of that? Yeah, anyway, that's what I've been doing mainly. What's this thing about goodness gracious me that you that popped up on your feed? Cause you've got to tell the pop crazy youngsters about this. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre, that. Yeah, sorry, that completely slipped my mind out. But yeah, um, <laughs> out. years and years and years ago. Wait till you hear this, pop crazy youngsters. <laughs> years and years and years ago. I mean, I loved goodness gracious me, of course. Like, like you know, virtually the entire Asian community in this country loved seeing ourselves on the screen. And, and oh, Come on, man. You had to take off up, mum. <laughs> and mind your language now you're right you're absolutely right but yeah. goodness gracious me I, I just remember there was a sketch in about 97 I think um, and it was this song called Hindi People it was obviously a takeoff of mm. Pulp's Common People and it was about kind of cultural tourism really it was about uh, sort of white people who want to pretend to be Asian and have a bindi on and wear a sari and all that sort of stuff mm. a couple of lines really jumped out at me for starters it, there's a line about studying at the University of York now I studied at the University of York there's a there's a moment where he throws away a cooler shaker record and yes. I, I'm not saying I'm famous for dissing Cooler Shaker but certainly you know people knew I hated that band and then Mm. the whole song ends with the line you'll never get with me because I was born in Coventry and I I was (laughs) I remember watching this in 97 and thinking fuck that that's uncanny and then Mm. thinking hmm do they know me? Do they, you know, but you, you, you know, you don't know. I was a kid in Cov who occasionally muted, uh, commuted out of London. And this is pre-internet. There's no way of checking this stuff. So for 20, 30, you know, well, actually, no, yeah, for 20 odd years, I've wondered, was that about me? Your ears were burning. Yeah. It's too uncanny. Do you know what I mean? Especially the throwing away of the Kuda Shaker record and the thing from Coventry studying at the University of York. It was just too much of a coincidence. So, I mean, the sole benefit, I guess, I've discovered of the open sewer that is Twitter is that you're able to kind of get in touch with people. So I got in touch with Sanjeev Bhaskar, or rather I posted the video, Hindi People, and um, just suggested, I've always wondered whether this is about me. And uh, yeah, he got back. We always knew it was about you. I mean, that's <gasps> mad, isn't it? That is, Fucking hell. I oh, mean, it's brilliant. really strange. I mean, it's lovely as well. Uh, it, but it's a kind of ambiguous statement, that the thing he said back. We, we always knew it was about you. Does that mean it was about me? I, I can't mm. tell. But I mean, that's too many coincidences, isn't it? No, claim it, Neil. Claim I it. am going to claim it. Um, which amazes me because, you know, when you write for the music press, especially in the 90s, the only feedback you got was in backlash. You know, occasionally in, on the letters page, mm. you get somebody, um, you know, writing it, usually to slack you off. So this notion that somebody outside of that tidy music press readership was cognizant of me in the 90s to the point where they got a sketch on national television, <laughs> not based on my life as such, but certainly, you know, that's me. Yeah. It's mad. I, I still can't wrap my head around that. There's there's one possible connection here. You know, I, I suspect, to be honest, they just directly, you know, knew about you just from reading Melodenberger, but I did. Perhaps, yeah. was kind of like vaguely friends and went out for a drink a few times with a guy called Sharat Sadana, who was one of the writers and occasionally appeared on the show, on Goodness Gracious Me. Mm. In fact, he was the guy who co-wrote the Going for an English ah, right, yeah. sketch, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. 
you know, where, you know, if you remember that one. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, you even tried to sort of get, you know, work for the BBC at the time and even tried and failed, mainly because I didn't come up with any good ideas to try and get some sort of, you know, sitcom type thing mm. that I might sort of do, but um, didn't really come to anything. Gammon and spinach is still going, David. Sadly, he died when he was about 40. He died quite a few years ago, but um, so it might, that might have like facilitated the yeah. connection, but I suspect they just, I suspect they just read the maker. I suspect they were aware of you. That's the bizarre thing because like, you know, the the stars of a new Asian call, who I always had a tangential relationship to anyway, uh, like Bobby Friction is my friend now. And he, he, he said yeah. to me the other day, yeah, I used to read your stuff all the time. We knew about you. Everyone knew about you. That staggers yeah. me, you know, uh, yeah. but it's lovely yeah. to hear. It is lovely to hear. And I guess, you know, what I've repeatedly said on chart music is, you know, there's not been any Asian people on top of the pops, and Freddie Mercury didn't admit to being Asian. We just wanted to see some. I guess for some Asian people, at least in the nineties, having an Asian writer in the music press did mean something and did matter, and they did kind of pay attention. Which I mean, it blows my mind. It really does. Yeah, David, mm. your book. Where is it? I want. Oh it yeah, now. yes. Well, I. I mean, there's more work to be done on it, but I did have this kind of like Stephen King sort of like write the last paragraph type moment and like. Have you, have you even told people what it's about yet, David? Yeah, well, it's a history of British comedy. Um, now, I did on Facebook um, suggest that. <laughs> well, suggest I did write up, you know, as a kind of sneak preview, the last two or three paragraphs, which um, you know perhaps I can read for you now here as a you know as a heads up for for the pop crazy youngsters. Yeah. So it's as shall, shall I set it to some music? Yes, do, do, <laughs> yeah. Something stirring. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'll... something a bit jaunty and, you know, comedy. Well, I don't know. I mean, well, put it this way. The working title is We Laughed Away Mr. Hitler, We Laughed Away Mr. Scargill, A History of British Comedy. So, you know, take it from there. Anyway, as follows. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the story of British comedy. If we've learned one thing, it's that we Brits love to laugh. If you've not had a laugh before, why not try out some of the comedians and shows mentioned in this book? You'll find examples of their work on channels like UK Gold, YouTube, or special digital versatile disc editions. Warning, be sure to be sitting near an aisle when you watch them, because pretty soon you'll be rolling. Of course, there were all kinds of things you used to be able to laugh at, you know, get fun from, before Mr. Ben Elton came along. <laughs> I hope you'll find some good examples here of the way things were when you were used to be allowed to smile. See, it's like, goodness gracious, I'm a foreigner, George the stammering half-wit, Nancy boy about the house, and my wife the Nazi. <laughs> If there's one thing I'd like you to take away, no, not a curry, you can't mention them anymore, is that we British have the unique ability to poke fun at yourselves. You know, women, whoopsies, northerners and the like. Let's hope that now that we have a true comedian in charge of the country and don't have to send our scripts to Belgian bureaucrats for approval anymore, we can get back to those gay days when gay meant what Larry Grayson meant it to mean, not its current meaning. <laughs> There you go. Stirring so, stuff. Now, all I can say is that, you know, it, it, it's a process and it could be that um, that working title is, uh, you know, dispensed <laughs> for politically correct reasons or, and um, those paragraphs don't even appear in the book. But anyway, yeah, it's all done. and Well, not all done, but um, it's kind of first draft's finished, put it that way. Oh, bravo, wow. David. Thank you. Well done. When's it due out? Oh, I don't know. Probably not for about an, many months, to be honest. Oh. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a backlog at favour. Can I just ask, David? Um, which hmm. def- obviously our list doesn't have to be included because I'm curious. Basically, what it, when she, it, have you got a cut off date for this story? In a sense that, like, 
you you stop writing about comedy from perhaps like a couple of years ago. Is that is that like do you stop in the nineties or noughties? I I do kind of cut off because yeah. I mean you know not seriously. You know the idea is is in fact political correctness is kind of a hero of the book. I'm saying that like that the kind of inclusivity and diversity um, of contemporary comedy, whether it's Man Like the Bean and stuff like that, or Derry mm-hmm. Girls, all this kind of stuff, you know, where there's just much broader representation, a much more of a naturalistic sense of people's lives as actually lived, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's more realistic than the kind of speculative ideas of, like, white script sitcom script writers in the 60s and 70s, you know. Yeah, doing, yeah. Um, Pakistanis doing black people, et cetera, et cetera. That's the major. But what I've kind of said is rather than go in depth into those series, I don't want to be the kind of the mansplaining guy in it and then saying that, like, it's probably for somebody else to take up yeah, yeah, that yeah. particular thing. And also, these are his, that's a history that's still being written, you know, with a lot of these series. They're, they're midway through. So I suppose I kind of cut off. Yeah, about a few years ago, and then just allude to the way that things are on the present day. Nothing to report from me, just doing chart music. That's that's my life now. And the reason for that is because of the following people. You know who they are. They're the people who we stop, we drop, and we bow the knee to. Yes, they're the latest batch of pop-crazed youngsters who have put a jingle in our G-string this month. And those people are, in the $5 section, Ted Rogers, Clive Gash, Mark Meadowcroft, Tom Bradley, Douglas Hartley, Tommy D, Joseph Nawaz, Scott Brooks, Fred Loosley, Justin Thomas, Peeps Nibbles, Jake Anthony Ede, Dominic Ellison, Neil Mallon, Stuart Dade, Joseph Goss, Dave Caffre, Sam Verall, Victoria Clester, Cormac Ward, Anthony Chapman, and Thunder Slay Parcel Force. Brilliant. Fine people Brilliant. all. In the $3 section, we have the Castello Kid and Paul Condon. Oh, former um, former leader of the Metropolitan Police has given us $3. Thank <laughs> you, Paul. <laughs> oh, and Vic Summers, thank you so much for jacking your donation up. And a special massive tar to Doug Grant, who's kicked in some dollar for a serious drink for everyone at Chop music this christmas time yes boys there is a santa and his name is doug thanks to all of you you are a gentleman yes you're all gentlemen apart from the ladies we we, we shall glug at the expense of doug i think (laughs) that let's not forget pulp crazy youngsters that if you are donating to patreon if you're in the five dollar section you've got the full episode right now without any advert rubbish and if you're in the $3 section, you get the full episode without any adverts a couple of days later. You get to cram the whole lot into any orifice you choose. Which face it is what you want. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. yeah. Fuck it. No no sitting about waiting for the next bit. Get it Get it down you now, mate. <laughs> and, of course, the other thing those people get to do is they get to tinker and a tanker and a, and a fiddle. And, indeed, they get to have a faddle as well <laughs> with the chart music top ten. Here it is, boys. This is Ooh. the Christmas top ten. Ah. Fucking hell. Shall we have it? Oh, yes. yes, we shall. Yes. Hit the fucking music. We've said goodbye to Fine Time Fontaine, The Treacherous Step, Suicide featuring Donna, and Spiteful Armoured Bollock, which means none up, five down, one no change, and four new entries. Down one place from number nine to number ten, it's Dave D, Creeper, Twat, and Cunt. <laughs> oh. Last week's number six 
This week's number nine. Oh, it's a six to nine for Jeff Sess. <laughs> it's a six-place drop from number two to number eight for Simon Price's arsehole material. <laughs> oh, that's the best of Stuck fast in the number seven slot. Here comes Jizzle. It's becoming the dark side of the moon, really. New entry this week at number six, 15 Hitlers. Ooh. Ooh. Into the top five and down two places from number three to number five, it's Bomber Dog. Last week's number one drops all the way down to number four, CFAX Data Blast. <laughs> Into the top three, and it's a new entry for Rock Expert David Stubbs! Excellent! Straight into the chart at number two for Panties, which means the highest new entry crashing into the chart at the top, and this year's chart music Christmas number one, James Galway's Flute of VD. Wow! Oh, man! What a chart! What a chart! What a fucking chart that is! What a chart! I mean... Al, you know, disputing your previous comments about panties straight in at number two. Yeah. I mean... Panties go up. Perhaps this could be used to... Um... Well, use panties, no fans. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> Not at Christmas, Neil. Let me finish, let me finish. Perhaps this could be used to actually, you know, get the original panties back together. Oh, you know um... what? I've spent so much time trying to find out who panties were and what they sounded like. <laughs> There's a lot of things I need to de- delete from my Google searches. Put it that way. Where can I get panties from 1978? <laughs> I think a wave of optimism has taken over the, the chart music top ten. Spiteful Armour Bollock dropping out the chart, man. That's, that's oh, it's a bit previous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Got a feeling they're going to resurface in the new year. Also, mm. sorry, what happened to um, CFAX Data Blast? Drop down, mate. Number four. <sighs> that's a shock. That's yeah. a shot. As much as um, fifteen Hitlers in with a bullet. Yeah. What? What? What a fifteen Hitlers sound like. <laughs> it's well. All I'm seeing is lie back. But um... yes. yes. <laughs> well, rock expert David Stubbs. I mean, obviously that that they're, they're lectures on vinyl, aren't they? Mm. Like, I can imagine rock expert David Stubbs issuing an EP <laughs> containing a lecture on the origination and progression of the hard-loving woman <laughs> who goes all night long. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Definitely a chin stroker, that one. <laughs> James Galway's flute of VD. Obviously, the non-alls have had, a, had their say there, haven't they? Mm, yeah, mm. definitely. Mm. And, and James Galway's flute of VD, let's be honest, it's James Galway. <laughs> So, Pop Craze Youngsters, if you are not giving us money at the moment and you really want to, and let's face it, you really, really want to, you get them little fingers right now, you set them down upon your keyboard, you mash, 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 <laughs> patreon.com slash chart music, and you pledge if you, if you feel like it. There's no no obligation, but it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Your, your soul will feel better. Yes. Mm. So, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to December the 23rd, 1982. And, well, hmm, if last episode was a banquet, this one's a bit more of a selection box, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And not necessarily a Cadbury selection box, either. Mm. It's, it's one of them you, your mum gets from the pan shop. 
and mm. she thinks you're too young to notice, but you do notice. Well, frankly, it's barely even that. It's more like uh, a dog shit with a lolly stick in it. It's not a great episode. Yeah, yeah. No, we were spoiled last episode, weren't we? Very though? much so, very much so. Yeah, yeah. If it's a chocolate box, there's a lot of coffee flavour. <laughs> This is more like my memories of Top of the Pops, really, in that, you know, it, yes. it, it occasioned more thumbs down and kind of scowling than anything else. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's the end of the first year of the Yellow Hurl era. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you mm. know, as we know, 1982, it's been a year of change and progression in, in both the charts and in Top of the Pops, for good and bad. Mm. And I feel this episode encapsulates the spirit of 1982 in oh so many ways. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it's the 1982 that people like me never tell you about. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rhapsodising about it, you know. I think, actually, yes, yes, there was all of this going on. I mean, I remember, I mean, I would have been sort of like putting like together mixtapes and like DJing, whatever. And like, you know, in many ways to me, you know, 1982 was, represents an absolute crest for pop. You know, we could actually, we're going to leap from 82 into 1983. And that was just going to be this glorious, glorious mm. year. Mm. Africa was going to be free, a merman I should turn to be and all that. It was yeah. It's going to be, we're on this cusp of transformation. I think like some like simple minds promise you a miracle and all that kind of stuff. It was teetering on all of that. And it was tremendous promise. Michael Foote would be prime minister yeah. as well, you know, and finally be rid of Thatcherism, mm. you know, just be a kind of just social transformation in going hand in glove with, you know, the kind of great pop aesthetic movements of the day. Yeah, and then (laughs) I mean, it was a statistic that I read the other day. I was just looking through, looking at like percentage of youth vote um, for conservatives. Now, in the 2019 election, it was 21 percent of um, 18 to 24 year olds voted conservative. Back in 1983, 83, that number was around 42 percent. 42% 42% of young people, of 18 to 24 year olds voted for Margaret Thatcher. Okay, and it's just like, God knows where all these people were. They weren't in my bubble. Uh, and I suppose I was in a bit of a bubble, you know, because um, I, you know, I, I tried to associate with uh, like minds. Although, actually, when I come to think about it, they were hard to find. I was Oxford at the time. I was in my, just in the beginning of my second year. And now that I do think about it, you know, even something like Simple Minds was considered sort of ridiculously radical. You know, mm. it's like, like putting Cabri Voltaire or This Heat on, you know, it was Simple Minds as far as a lot of contemporaries were concerned. There probably was a lot more sort of conservatism around at the time. And in, in a sense, I'm not saying that, like, you know, all the kind of some of the duffers that are on this, you know, episode tonight voted Tory, but, well, certainly not one of them in particular. Mm. Um, but... Um, but yeah, yeah, there was a distinct underside to 1982. And I think, as Al says, yes, this does speak a truth about the year, which I probably wish it hadn't. Yeah, if you want that truth about a year, the Christmas episodes are always yeah. Yeah. good for that. Because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're purely, in a sense, about figures. They're, they're, I mean, sales figures, I mean. Um, so although during the year you're, you're able to negotiate the year and avoid things that are rubbish in your radio choices mm. and your listening. At Christmas, you get the big hits, and they're quite often mm. pretty fucking awful, um, as we'll see. Yeah, I mean, th- this we, we've got to make this clear now that this is not the Top of the Pops Christmas episode no. of 1983. No. It's the last proper Top of the Pops of 1982. But, yeah. you know, and the great thing about 1982 in this period is that, you know, by this time, in late 1982, the kids had finally wrested control of the charts 
and Top of the Pops and Michael Hurl have been struggling to keep it a family show. But as we all know, December's always that month where the non-alls of Britain fumbled in their purses at the counter of HMV. Yeah. To the detriment of our weekly dose of pop excitement. We, we're, and we're going to see a lot of that in this one, aren't we? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. We're going to see the damage that Grandma We mm. Love You wrought. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at this time, I wouldn't really watch much TV, but one thing we've done is congregate the top of the pops in the old junior common room and... Uh, and yeah, it would have been the thing where you would have like sort of like give a, a cheer and a boo, you know, to things that were kind of of our world and yeah. things that weren't really. And and I just remember nineteen eighty two in general yielding a very high hit rate. You know, might, there might be you know if you were, you were feeling generous, you might let haircut one hundred in or whatever. Yeah, because enemy wrote about them once, you know, things like that. But <laughs> it was. Um, Generally, you know, you might, you might get 13 or 14 cheers out of an episode, you mm. know. I think you're absolutely right, Al. It's the grannies, isn't it? it it's them yes. going to the record shops. Yeah. And, th- and, mm. and possibly picking out what they think might be good gifts for their grandchildren. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, yes and, and, there's, a, there's a prime yeah. example of that, isn't there? Yeah. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Come on, let's get yeah. stuck in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, But we will. Uh, And there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers. So join us for Plenty Plenty Questions. In the news this week, well... The USA announced that their first batch of cruise missiles are fully operational and have started leaning hard on the Thatcher government to get them installed at Greenham Common before the CND movement gains momentum in the UK. Meanwhile, women from the Greenham Common Peace Camp have infiltrated the base of Saturday Night Disco, have danced with assorted GIs and reminded them that they're living on a prime target for Soviet nuclear missiles. According to The Guardian, one of the disco raiders said, when they found out we were from the peace camp, one of them buried his head in his hands and said, Jesus Christ. (laughs) They seem friendly but seemed scared the officers would discover who we were. 
Fucking hell, that's a that's a play for today right there, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Freedom common people, if you will. <laughs> Very good. Turkeys have been withdrawn from sale in Harrods and a Woolworths in Liverpool after anonymous phone call from someone posing as a member of the animal rights activist group claimed that they'd been laced with paraquat. Police later announced it's a hoax. Margaret Thatcher has invited a special guest to stay with her at Checkers for the entire duration of the Christmas holiday, Jimmy Savile. In an interview with Gloria Hunniford, Savile says he can't wait to have a break from being Britain's most prolific sex offender for a while, but we'll be nipping out to the nearby Stoke Mandeville Hospital to give out sweets to poorly kids at some point in the week. Keith Richards has got married to Patty Hansen in Barbados. Sweaty paedophile minor royal Prince Andrew has been discovered building a love nest around the corner of Buckingham Palace with the actress Koo Stock. The BBC have announced the presenters for their forthcoming breakfast TV slot, which starts next month. Frank Boff and shaking Diana herself, Selena Scott. (laughs) Tottenham Hotspur have announced the imminent return of Osvaldo Ardiles from his spell at Paris Saint-Germain, who he moved to in the wake of the Falklands War. But the big news this week is that Smash Hits have just announced the results of the 1982 Reader's Poll. Shall we play a game, Chaps? Oh, yes, please. Oh, God, I'm always rubbish at these, but go on, yeah. (laughs) Best band? 82. For 82. Got to be Duran. Yeah, I'm going to say Duran. Duran Duran. Yeah. Best male singer? Oh, Simon Le Bon. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go Simon Le Bon too. Simon Le Bon. Yeah, I mean, how would it not be? Best female singer? Oh. It's going to be something like Tracy Ullman or something, isn't it? I think it's either Claire Grogan or it might be Annie Lennox. I'm going to go Claire Grogan. It's too early for Annie Lennox. Oh, God, yeah, it's too early. Toya. Toya, yeah, of course. Fucking hell. (laughs) Side out. Best single. Oh, well, what was 1982? Was it was a reflex that year? Uh, No, that was 83, wasn't it? It wouldn't have been anything good. It's not going to be bloody screech litty or whatever like it should have been. (laughs) Uh, Something by Duran Duran. Yeah, because, I mean, Rio comes out in 82, doesn't it? So uh, I'm going to go for the title track. Fuck it, Rio. Save a prayer. Uh, okay. Best oh. LP. Okay, I'm going to go Rio Duran Duran. Yeah, me too. Rio Duran Duran. Yeah. <laughs> Most promising new act. Oh, eighty two. Hmm. It wouldn't wouldn't possibly be Bow Wow Wow, would it? It's it's a duo. Ah. Uh, oh, Wham. Eighty two. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. They were just beginning to break at that point. I'm pretty sure. Tears for fears. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> Most annoying record. Mm. I'll give you a clue on this one. It wasn't a number one, but it was the follow-up to a number one. Ooh. That, I mean, it's a good clue, Albert. I'm still not the wiser, to be honest with you. Um, was it the follow-up? Most. Was it St. Winifred's, whatever followed that up. They did a follow-up to that, didn't they? No. Yeah, yeah I give up. What by Captain Sensible. Oh. <laughs> Happy Talk yes. was number two. Yes. Best radio DJ. Mm. 82. Um, David Kid Jensen. Mm. Steve Wright. Mike Reed. Mike Reed. <laughs> <laughs> Who fucking rated Jesus? Mm. 
and the best TV show. Who? Tis was. I reckon Top of the Pops. Yeah. Top of the Pops. Of course it's Top of the Pops. How obtuse of me. (laughs) On the cover of The Enemy this week, Paul Weller in a nice John Steed outfit with the hook of an umbrella around his neck. On the cover of Smash Hits, Tears for Fears. The number one LP at the moment is the John Lennon Collection. The singles, the first 10 years by ABBA is number two. Dig the New Breed, the live compilation by the Jammers at number three. And the highest placed proper LP is Rio by Duran Duran at number four. Over in America, the number one single at the moment is Man Eater by Hall and & Oates. And the number one LP in America is Business As Usual by Men at Work for its sixth week. It would spend 15 weeks at number one in America, that album. Fucking why? Hell. (laughs) So, me dear boys, what were we doing in December of 1982? Oh, well, I I would have been about 10. Um, So, really, my memories, of course, of this time, December, are very, very Christmas related and to do with the presents that I wanted. And the presents I was hoping to get. I remember that December being quite a snowy one. Yes. Although that, that yeah, it was, wasn't it? I'm not yes. just imagining that. I remember it being a really snowy one. Um, and I seem to recall it being the year of just yearning, yearning, yearning for an Astro Wars. Mm. Um, it was the year that came out and I so wanted it for Christmas. And um, no, the, the happy ending to this story, I did get it. Um, it was the following year. With the power pack this time. With the power pack. Yes. It was the following year. I was getting confused with the ZX Spectrum because I think I got that the following year. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was all about the Astro Wars that year. It was a year in which I think I was already, in a sense. I mean, I was being tutored in music by my sister, as usual. She was a big Duran fan. Mm. And I wasn't that into Duran, so I started exploring the older music that she was bringing out. It was very much an era pre-me playing an instrument, of me having a tennis racket and pretending to play guitar, and having that pop fantasy of being in all of these bands. So in my head, I ran a kind of reel, where in the 60s I was in the Rolling Stones, and in the 70s I was Mick Rock, you know, this strange kind of idea that I could be in all these bands, that was then only followed, of course, by the white... There's no more incandescent fury than when you realise that when you've been dancing around with a tennis racket playing to, you know, playing a guitar, that your mum has been watching you for five oh, yes. minutes, uh, grinning. Um, so, yeah, I think it's the start of that thing that, you know, being 10 is a great age, actually, because you're not a kid no more, really. And you're kind of, you're not a moody teenager yet, but I, I do recall yeah. a lot of door slamming and kind of, you know, sticking the visa at the door yes. after it slams, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, a, a very, it, it, it was a blissful time, actually, uh, 1982 in a sense. I've just moved to the very house that I'm sitting in now. Um I'm just settling in. It was nice. It was quiet. Nice snowy winter. I've got really good memories of 82. I never used a tennis racket when I was um, playing guitar because I, I, I didn't have one. Mm. Did I have a cricket bat? I think I had a cricket bat. So cricket bat, yeah. Uh, but what I had was um, my dad, who was um, working as a removal man. So he'd bring any crap that was being chucked mm. out. Um, mm. My mum vetted it to decide whether it was good for the house or not. We have those old school warming pans. Oh, right, yeah. The ones that warm up your bed. I saw it more as a bass than uh, than a guitar. Yeah. And uh, my mate once came calling for me in around about 1980 and caught mm-hmm. me directly in front of the mirror, giving it proper musician comfort <laughs> to um, the, the bass line of fashion by David Bowie. 
And so for the next four years until we left school, he, every now and again, if he wanted to wind me up, he'd just look at me and just go, beep, beep, and piss himself laughing. <laughs> and see my face go red. And it, it was just a thing oh, between no. me and him. It was never yeah, revealed yeah. why that would set me off. He never said anything. I certainly never said anything. So, so there you go. Yeah, if you are using a warming pan as a base... <laughs> Pop crazy youngsters, make sure all the curtains are drawn. Uh. <laughs> what about you, David? Well, I was going to say, I would. I, I bet you used the edge of your bed as a keyboard, didn't you, when you were listening to Faust and all that? I was going to say, I would never have used anything, a bedpan or a tennis, as a guitar, because guitars were rockish, yeah. they were phallic, and if you're going to listen to guitar or pretend to play guitar, you might as well have been voting conservative, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> None of that for me, no. I was a bit of a soul boy at this point, but also into like, Kind of all kind of weird avant-garde stuff. Avid reader of Enemy, the sort of avant-garde Endium, Morley's Pendens, and you know, and forming it, and also into that kind of new pop thing, ABC Scritty and stuff like mm. that. And it genuinely was a golden time. Mm. I mean, obviously, it helps that you're at one is at a certain age, you know. Yes. One thing at that point is, I would have worn a shirt and tie every single day. Wow. Um, at that point, everything I've never done it really done it since. Now I try and dress like some sort of like sports direct. <laughs> Kid, you know, people <laughs> might think I'm 38 as opposed to 58, you know, pathetic, really. But then it was a matter of pride. Mm. I remember going to a fall gig in 82 around that time, dressed like that, you know, tie, very, very neat and clipped. And Marky Smith, I can't remember what the song is or what the lyric was, but it's very sardonic of some sort of like type, you know, that he despises, that's sort of festering and like, you know, marinating one of his lyrics. And, he said, and then he sort of looks directly at me in the audience and said, he's here tonight. He's going to wear a tie, you know. That's brilliant. I reminded him of that because I interviewed him a few times and he didn't remember, but um, yeah. The strange thing was that I probably felt, you know, highly attuned to the world because it was at the kind of, you know, felt at like the avant-garde end of things. But I was probably, I think that you and the age that you guys were, were probably much more connected with stuff as it actually mm. was. Because, for instance, I didn't watch television at all at yeah, that point, or yeah, barely yeah. watch television. You know, I didn't know what were like, like kids' shows and stuff like that. There's all kinds of signifiers and things from the early 80s that I just don't get because I was in this slightly kind of rarefied atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but that, that, yeah, that, was, that was me in 82. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I, I did have a good time, I have to say. December 1982 is, is my period of mourning over the jam <laughs> who have just played their final gig so I'm sitting at home in my bedroom rinsing Dig the New Breed the, the posthumous live LP which was only the second jam LP that I could you know actually buy and consume at the same time as everybody else mm. just lying on my bed listening to it thinking I'll never see them ever Oh, mate. I know. <laughs> I'm halfway through the third year at, at Comprehensive School, and on the last day of term, a week before, I got done. Yeah. This was the time of the milk advert, yeah, lot of bottle, and uh, I started <laughs> singing, Sir has worked in a lot of brothels. <laughs> Just dragged off to the staff room and made to sit outside, and he said, I'll come and talk to you later. And I'm sitting there outside the staff room, just wondering what's going to happen to me. All the teachers are filing in, Mm. laughing and pointing at me, going, oh, you're here again, are you? Merry Christmas and all this. (laughs) And every time the door opens, I notice that the tables that they've set up are being absolutely weighed down with beer and wine because they're having their end of term piss up. <laughs> and every time the door swings open, there's more and more booze and, and the pall of fag smoke gets bigger and bigger. 
And I, I ended up sitting there for two hours. I'd just been forgotten about. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the teacher that done there, he comes out absolutely pissed out of his face to get in his car and go home. And he, he just turns around. He stares at me. And then he says, Merry Christmas. Now piss off. <laughs> and that was it. That was the first time it actually occurred to me that teachers didn't really give a toss about you. Mm. I always used to think that my teachers would be lying in bed thinking, oh, I'll need him. Oh, he infuriates me so. Why, why doesn't he knuckle down and get a better grade and all this kind of stuff? Because you just think that you, you, your teachers do nothing but, but think about you and yeah. get angry about you and think of ways of fucking your life up. No, they don't give a shit, actually. Yeah, yeah. Just want to get pissed up and cop off with each other and smoke loads of fags. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to have this, this apprehension that, you know, for quite a long time, I was probably about 15 or 16 before I was disabused of it, that teachers hated holidays because teaching was essentially their life. And, like, you know, when they were <laughs> a teacher, they were just like, might as well be hanging in a cupboard or something like that, yeah. And, that, you know, and I always felt slightly, my, my joy at the holidays is always tempered by the fact that I thought, well, this is going to be rubbish for you teachers, isn't it? You know, you're not doing the thing that you're... <laughs> Yeah. To do. I mean, but I think Neil will possibly um, yeah, spare me out that that's perhaps not the case. Well, absolutely not the case. But I mean, it, it's so changed. I mean, you know, the staff room, when I was a kid at my school, the staff room, I'm not saying it's some sacred place, but we didn't exactly get to see it. Do you know what I mean? It was a place that you sat outside no. waiting to get bollocked. And yes. it was down a corridor. You didn't really know what went on in that room. Whereas now, you know, if I need a chat with no. a student, I do have to take them to the freaking staff room. And, and it, I know, no, no privacy no more. God, no, no. I used to think that the school staff room would be like full of globes and, and scrolls <laughs> and dictionaries and stuff like that. You know, it'd be a, an extra place of learning and contemplation. <laughs> No, it was just full of fucking cans of long life and wine boxes yeah, yeah. and uh, ashtrays, endless amounts of ashtrays. Oh, the, the, the ability to smoke inside an educational institution, I only tasted that for two years when I started teaching oh, in 2005. Man. But so much shit gets sorted in the smoking room, always does. Um, but that, that hallowed ground of the staff room, that slight sense of mystery with teachers... We're not allowed to have it in a sense. We've got a glad hand, you know. We can't rise above. We have to kind of be friendly. Um, It's part of the movement towards customer service notions of education, I think. Um, But it's, yeah, I remember the staff room just being this hallowed, slightly scary place that you certainly didn't want to go into or look into, but was intriguingly mysterious, yeah. I mean, there were some pretty fearless types at my school, like this kid called Kevin Burke. You know, we had a French teacher who was quite tall, you know, Big Bill. And like, it was at the height of like, the, you know, it was 1977. And I remember he, he put a safety pin right through his nose and it was all kind of scratching and bleeding. And he came out of the staff room and he shouted at Big Bill, punk rock, you know. And we thought, God, you know, and that's how. But he would never have thought or even dared actually to have like gone into that staff room and like, you know, and, and, and that. No. You know, even then, I mean, even yeah. someone like Kevin Burke knew that the staff room was absolutely sacred out of bounds you know that yeah. you know you'd probably get flogged or something like that they probably sort of wheel out yeah. some sort of like Eat you know sort of punishment equipment from the billy bunters era or yeah. something like that if you were to dare you know un- yeah. unprecedented yeah no yeah. currently currently when you're sat in a staff room and the door knocks you have to answer it and it's usually a student and they can see you through the glass of the door so much so that i actually blocked it up with the newspaper just so I could retain some sense of privacy. That's like going to a restaurant and thinking you can just walk into the fucking kitchen. Well, the the reason being, I didn't want them seeing what was on the whiteboard. 
um, which was just a list of students that we all fucking hated. Um, so, yeah, we can retain a bit of it, but yeah, increasingly now we're, we're, we're kind of out and visible. Mm. I think teachers benefit from that special place where they can just talk honestly, have a fag as well. That used to make a big, big difference. Mm. Um, passing around the ready room. This is it, yeah? this is it. Um, but no, that's all gone now. But after, if you watch any of those educating series, you know, Essex, Yorkshire, I mean, I'm, just, I'm just absolutely astonished by them. I think, Christ alive, things have really, really moved on over the last three or four decades. Oh, yeah. And when I think about really what went on in my school in particular in the 70s, all of my moaning about Ofsted that invariably is a teacher I always do, thank fuck for Ofsted. Because when schools weren't inspected and they were just allowed to fucking get on with it, yeah, well... Uh, um, it covered up a lot of horrible shit. So it's probably a good thing about the more openness, but I think the staff room should still be, Mm. yeah, a place where when you open the door, um, all that comes out is the smell of sour, defeat, rage, bitterness, (laughs) and, you know, and fag smoke, basically. Mm. Incidentally, (laughs) Al, just as a little sign, you mentioned getting done, got done, and we we got done in Leeds in the 70s. I just wonder if it's something that spread down to Coventry. Did you used to get done? Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Just usually, I got done, you know, full stop. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 I mean, truth be told, I stand outside my daughter's school every day and and listen to all these year sevens coming out and year eights, and don't ask what that means, but basically little kids and big kids. But basically, you'd be glad to know, kids are still swearing. Yes. Kids are still being horrible to each other. Kids are still hitting each other. Same old shit's still happening. Don't, Don't think that kids are coming out joyfully talking about education they're coming out calling no. each other cunts and whores and bastards and shits and all of that it's all the same stuff yeah. so they still stand around in circles spitting into a kind of communal pool of phlegm <laughs> yeah. oh yeah boys still gather in circles yeah. absolutely yeah that still happens Oof. yeah the other big event of this month of course is that i'd gone the week before to see et with my mates did you cry? Because it finally came out in the UK. American pop craze youngsters, they, they won't get this at all. But, you know, back then, uh, the release dates in Britain and America were just fucking months and months and months apart. Mm. Because E.T.'s a summer film in America. Yeah. And to us, it's a Christmas one. More of a Halloween one, yeah. actually. You know, because uh, as we've pointed out in a previous episode, E.T. ruined Halloween. Yeah, yeah. It's where Halloween is birthed in this e. country. E.T. ruined Bonfire Night for everyone. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I say we went to see E.T. Um, we actually went to the ABC to point and laugh at people who were crying at E.T. <laughs> you bastard. I don't remember much of the film, but I do remember my mates pointing and doing that snappy finger thing whenever we saw someone roaring and going, Ah, shame! And people telling us to fuck off. Shame was not an version of bad skit. Oh, my God. I mean, even I didn't see many films at that point, but I did see E.T., yeah, yeah. With a girl who cried, <laughs> you'd have probably been very cruel to her. Out, Shane guy. I'd have, to, I'd have had to sort of say something as well. I'd have had to stand up to you. It's always funny that when aliens come down to Earth, they always end up in America. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's never Bangladesh or or Basingstoke, or Hungary, or Nottingham. anywhere like that, yeah. is it? Or yeah. here, or Britain? Yeah, no, no, of course not. No, because you want if you're an alien, you're obviously an intelligent being. You just go, I'm not going near America. They've all got fucking guns. <laughs> let's go to. Let's Let's go to Britain. We'll batter them cunts. Mm. What have they got? Death stars. 
The best thing I got out of BT, and this is a genuinely sublime artifact, is um, an electro funk classic by the Extra Tees called um, E.T. Boogie. Yes. Mm. Extra great yes. stuff, if you know that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that reminds me, because around about this time, I was going to Rock City on a Saturday afternoon because they had a uh, kids' disco, sometimes hosted by Dale Winton. Wow. And I remember him playing that song and saying, Have you seen the film yet? And me sort Ooh. of half putting my hand up because I hadn't really. I'd seen people crying at it. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I really hate about E.T. is it's his fault for fucking M&M's being so popular in this country. And they're shit. (laughs) Give him some revels. You know, because sometimes you get an orange one and they're nice. And sometimes you get a coffee one and they're not so nice. And that would have taught E.T. more about humanity, I think. Having a daughter, I've had to go to M&M World in Leicester Square. Why? Oh God, well, I don't, you know. I mean, it's a shame. We never had Revels World, did we? In the seventies? No, we didn't. No. Yeah. No. But M Oh God, it's just. Uh... Well, yeah. I mean, normal M Ms not as nice as Smarties, and peanut M Ms not as nice as treats. No, exactly. Treats were fucking gorgeous. I loved them. Yeah. <laughs> and they were three times the size as well. Quite yes. Right. God, we're a bunch yeah. of old bastards, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. But we're right. <laughs> Revels World. I would have gone there. I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different zones, an orange zone, a coffee zone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rebels world would be, you go there and it changes every day, so you don't know what you're going to mm. get. Yeah, mm. you might get that really weird um, minstrel without the candy shell that always used to pop up in a revel as well, yeah. Mm. All right, and Pulp Craze youngsters, you know how we go about at this point of the proceedings. We're going to rummage through a box or two and pull out an issue of the music press from this very week. And this week, I have gone for Melody Maker of December the 18th, 1982. Boys, shall we leave through it? Oh, yes. Mm. On the cover, Shalimar, with Jeffrey Daniel in full kilted regalia, underneath some painted on balloons, because it's the Christmas edition, plus a cover-mounted flexidist of the jam playing Move On Up live in Japan. Oh, yes, I bought this. <laughs> At the beginning, of there's some English voice going, Yuko Say Say Issue Bin Oti Toti The Jam! <laughs> It's the only Japanese I know. That cover is pretty damn garish. Melody Maker went through a strange phase at this stage. Um, just about two, a couple of years earlier, it had people like John Savage and Chris Bond writing for it, and it had that kind of sort of gravitas mm. and big page features about this heat and Cabri Voltaire and all that kind of stuff. And then I think a conscious decision was made to steer it in the direction of being an inky smash hits. Right, um, which, as we mm. saw in the, in the very its very last incarnation, maker mm. is not something anybody in the world really wants. And um, I think sales may have started to tumble at this point. And it's definitely a world away. I've definitely abandoned Melody Maker at this point. The enemy, yeah. um, there was a world yeah. between them at this point. Was that change signified by the change in the masthead? Was that a, was because that MM masthead? That I'm this has always there. been a problem, right? MM. Now the trouble is, and I think this is always it's hugely fateful actually in terms of the acronym enemy comes out really nicely as, as yeah. an acronym. Enemy. And so they were able to ditch this whole ridiculous stay, New Musical Express, you know, with that mm, six five mm. special type connotation. MM, <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. slip out in the same way. And so it tends to get saddled with Melody Maker, you know, and all the connotations of 1926 and Ed Cruz yeah. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know. In the news, 
The rainbow in Finsbury Park has been taken over by squatters. It's crass and some of their mates who are planning to stay there for a bit as a protest against their latest tour being cancelled over the release of How Does It Feel to Be the Mother of a Thousand Dead. There were 30 of us. We went in through the emergency exit. We did no criminal damage and we can't be evicted because the courts have closed for Christmas, says band guitarist Andy Palmer. Anyone who hasn't got anywhere to stay can stay with us. There's plenty of room, the heating, electric and hot water are all on and we're quite comfortable. They plan to play a free gig at some point, but after being forcibly evicted after Melody Maker has gone to press, they end up squatting in the abandoned zigzag club in Westbourne Park and have a lovely time. <laughs> Good old crap. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> There's just a couple of little things leap out from you at that. There's almost like something quaint, for instance, about how does it feel to be the mother of a thousand dead. It's a bit like that moment in the Austin Powers film where Dr. Evil, he's been, you know, defrozen, and he says, and I will blow up the world unless I receive one million dollars. <laughs> you know, a thousand dead. It's just like, come on, man, that's not very much. You know, these days, you know, war crimes, you're talking it'll be a hundred thousand dead. You know, it's almost like simpler, quainter, smaller scale times, I guess. You know, yeah. yeah. And the squatting and all that is really cool. I mean, you know, it was such a moral panic about squatting, I suppose. Well, especially in the 80s and the 70s. I remember, the, do you remember that there was an episode of Bless This House where Sid leaves, you know, leaves, you know, he leaves out for a while and then somebody just strolls in because he's left the door open and, and <laughs> squatters' rights, you know. I mean, that's what we went through in the 70s. It was a real, you know, that was the reality of like suburban life, you know. Heavy Metal Records announced that they have no plans to withdraw the LP cover and accompanying advertising for their latest release. Death Penalty by Stalbridge band Witchfinder General. The LP, which features page three lovely Joanne Latham sat on a grave with her jubblies out, surrounded by the band in Civil War costumes on the front, and Joanne all stabbed up and dead on the back, caused a string of complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority after it featured in a free magazine given away by HMV. The label say that the cover is, quote, Merely a reenactment of a factual event which took place during the 18th century <laughs> when the Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins led a reign of terror against women of the day and is in the best possible All taste. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'll tell you what, Neil, we ended up with Carol Clark would have been working on the news desk at this yeah, point, yeah. assistant news editor. I can just imagine her sort of raucously chuckling away at this story. It's got all kind of <laughs> fingerprints all over it, the whole thing. Definitely. But I mean, it's the time, I think, that, yeah. you know, the early 80s in particular, where metal is on a mission to outrage people. Because mm. I think Venom have basically up the stakes here. Because mm. Venom are coming out with songs called, like, Fuck Off and Die and things like that. So mm. it, it was definitely becoming that music that was unsafe mm. um, at this period. By the way, Death Penalty by Witchfinder General is a fucking terrible album. But, is it? Well, they're from Stourbridge, for fuck's sake. You know, I mean, mm. enough said. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a pretty awful record. But metal, I was, I was picking up a few metal mates by now. Even though I was only 10, um, of course, for 10-year-old, all of this stuff is just 
delightful and stuff that you want to you, you you're interested in but it's also slightly forbidden it's kind of percolated down from older brothers who are into this shit um, um, but yeah, that's definitely happened in this period. And it's a period of maximum outrage, especially for British provincial metal bands like Witchfinder General and Venom. They're at peak ridiculousness at this era. Yeah, it's a bit smell the glove, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is that if you're going to own six Witchfinder General albums, this wouldn't be one of them. <laughs> no, uh, bypass this one. <laughs> Five bouncers at Elton's Disco in Tottenham are in court accused of attacking members of Mod and romance. According to the prosecution, the group, who were there to celebrate lead singer David James's birthday, were told to stop singing along to the songs being played at the disco. And after former frontman Jeff Dean was escorted from the premises, an argument ensued, and one of the defendants is alleged to have said, Get the tools. <laughs> Quote, Total mayhem ensued. Former drummer Kevin Steptoe was struck in the face with an ashtray. James was biffed and Dean was told, Shut up or I'll cut you by the helpful staff. <laughs> the trial concludes in the new year. God, man, who'd want to beat up modern romance? Yeah, but th- th- this is the weird thing, though. I mean, probably they, they were probably a fairly sort of predictably soft target, but you didn't necessarily mess with the young new romantics. You know, people like no. Chris Sullivan out of Blue Rondo de la Tour. You know, he's quite a hard case. Boy George <laughs> came from a boxing family. And I tell you, he's, like, 1982, I would have gone to, like, the warehouse in Leeds, and there were a lot, everyone's, like, in top hat and tails. And they're all fucking hard northern bastards, you know, <laughs> sort of, st- you know, steal my pint types. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, could have all worked out differently, this one. That store is just a great advert, isn't it, for Elton's disco in Tottenham? Yes. <laughs> Must go there. But, I mean, of course, this is the day. These are the days when ashtrays could do some proper damage. Oh, um, yes. oh. Big, weighty glass things or, yeah, or you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of, like, drummer Kevin Steptoe being the kind of Steptoe grandson, you know. And all, all yes. Like, <laughs> oh, it could have carried on, God. couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Snaresbrook Crown Court, a judge dismisses a case of handling stolen goods brought by CBS, EMI and Polygram against Cheapo Cheapo Records in Soho and the Woodford Green Vinyl scrapyard. The labels are claiming that the free records given away by them to disc jockeys and music journos still belong to them and could not be sold on, but the judge ruled that they were talking bollocks. Polygram have responded by saying they'll be reviewing their system of sending out promo copies in the new year. Ugh. That would have affected your Oof. lot, Big Star, wouldn't it? Fucking oh, I was just going to say, this is a landmark ruling for people in my world. People would literally have died if it hadn't been, you know. Yeah. How much extra money on the side were you making a week from your uh, review copies? I think it depended on, on your scruples, basically. Mm. I mean, some people <laughs> made an awful lot. I probably might have made about 150 extra months, which is pretty modest. There are a lot of people who are doing a lot better. And I think in the 90s, I think certain people who just just did the rounds of, um, you know, all these old companies like Phonogram, um, EMI and Warners and just came away with like loads and loads of promo stuff. And they went directly around to, um, you know, just to flog it in. Record and tape exchange. Yeah. Tape exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or wherever was doing the best rates. Yeah. I mean, some people were very, very unscrupulous about it. Um, I was moderately unscrupulous, but uh, people would have died if it went for this. Yeah. 
starved to death. God bless the QC in this case, because, I mean, mm. that, you know, that stuff, it kept my lights on on <laughs> several occasions, you know, in the night. <laughs> yeah. It kept my kids fed. No, genuinely. I mean, it, 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 I wasn't one that, that, that sort of used to deliberately ask for promos just for this purpose. But I kind of built up a backlog, you know, like about three, four months worth, and then I'd, I'd get rid. And it, it will always be at that moment that invariably happens with any freelancer's career, when, you know, you've got, like, two weeks to go until you might get paid. And you're completely brassically skin. It was a godsend. Um, for me, it was a place called Entertainment Exchange in Nuneaton. It did necessitate going to Nuneaton, but I, I was in <laughs> out quick before I caught nits. But it was, um, you know, without without that, my God, without that judgment, in fact. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I would have really struggled a lot, I think, throughout the night. Yeah. What's the naughtiest thing you've done then with, with promo records? <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean? What do you mean, naughty? What do you mean? Well, in the sense that, you know, you you, you sold something on before it actually officially came out. Oh, that could have happened. Yeah. yeah. I've sold a few things. That, 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 when um, the industry got wise to all this, that things were getting flogged on, um, especially in the late nights, I noticed a lot of CDs turning up and tapes turning up that were watermarked. And what I mean yes. by that is, yeah, I mean, some of them actually had, like, the insertion of kind of messages. This is a promo yeah. copy from, yes. you know, and all of that. Pentas used to get loads of tapes sent, but I think Pentas was pretty low on the record company's list. So we, ju- we just got tapes with just white noise every 30 seconds. Because, mm. <laughs> honestly, they go, well, it's a wank mag, isn't it? They're not going to fucking, mm. who cares? Mm. Who cares what they think? But in terms of the actual bootlegging, I mean, it was never journalists. Journalists would have known how to sort of, like, you know, do all that kind of stuff. It was... Um, I mean, I remember one time, I got a weird one like that. It was a Tori Amos album, and they sent it over. It was just welded into a Disman-type thing. Mm. You couldn't get it out of there, you know. So they, you know, they, they, you know, they basically sacrificed... Um, a disman, you know, just for the sake of a promo copy. It was extraordinary. Fuck. That's crazy. Mm. Imagine being on a desert island and that washes up. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. They did, they did try everything because I remember interviewing bands and, and towards the late 90s, um, a thing started happening, especially with big major labels. They'd invite you to interview a band and they wouldn't send you a promo. What they'd do is they'd put you in a room beforehand with something on a mini disc or something like that, and that's that was your sole access to yeah. it, and you had like an hour to listen to it and write down the questions, and that was it. Mm. They tried everything. I mean, for me, the golden age of getting this shit was not actually CDs. It was that beautiful little window, in a sense, for me. It's very evocative, um, sort of early nineties to mid nineties. Of course, that's resonant for me, but it, it was those tapes, those black tapes that you only got from record companies. Um, it's tape promos that I really miss mm. uh, in this yeah. era of download codes and, and streaming and all of that. Um, I really miss those tapes. It was thrilling getting those and brilliant for having a Walkman and stuff like that. Yeah, because I mean, in the early 90s, I worked at the record and tape exchange for a while, like mm-hmm. half of London did. And um, I became on nodding terms with one or two music journalists who were just bringing in armfuls of this shit. Mm-hmm. And the minute they came in, the staff would descend upon them because they were, you know, to them, they were minor celebrities. Mm. Uh, but also, more importantly, they had good shit that you actually wanted. Mm. I, I didn't get descended on by anybody in the record and tape exchange. <laughs> and 15 quid is generally what I got offered for my box full of things. What was the most you ever got then for, for one item? Ooh. 
God, I just sent, used to send him off as a job lot. I did actually once get, um, I did get a promo cassette of What's the Story, Morning Glory, which had the track that they had to take off because it was so obviously a rip-off of um, um, Stevie Wonder's Uptight as it kind of stepped right. Yeah. And I think I, might, I think I managed to sort of get about 25 quid for that at some point, but that's that, that's... You know, pretty pitiful, really. Uh, yeah, it was a job. Like it was, it was always for me. It was kind of like, here's a box. You deal with it. I'll come back in half an hour and tell me how much you know you're offering. And then a bit of bar, a bit of bar. But I wasn't in a position to you know argue the Tyson sets. I needed to mm. get my electricity back in my house. Do you know what I mean? It was always <laughs> that kind of thing, or, or feed. My children. Also, so, yeah. in the mid '90s, drug habits serviced as well. Yeah, I mean there was some, you know, mentioning no names, but there was some pretty, pretty oh, desperate. Yes, yes, uh, yes. You know. absolutely. It's instant. Yeah, it's an instant little baggie if you can take <laughs> two hundred promos out there. Record and tape exchange. Yeah, you're sorted for kind of a couple of days, I guess. <laughs> and the British invasion of 1982 culminates with the Weekly World News reporting on Boy George, who they call a slinky songbird who drives British teen boys wild. <laughs> is it a her, a him, or is it neither? reports the supermarket tabloid. This kind of sexual mix-up could create an entire generation of homosexuals, <laughs> said a concerned parent that they made up in the office on deadline. Oh, in the box office, they did so, no doubt. Yeah. In the interview section, well, two pages are given over to photos of the last ever jam gig at the Brighton Centre, which mainly consist of the band members sitting on their own smoking fags and an untouched cake. Paolo Hewitt reports that it wasn't the show many expected or wanted. The band played up too much to the audience and ultimately it was the audience who let them down by throwing bottles and rubbish, prompting an angry Bruce Foxton to shout, I want to remember this last gig for the good moments, not the bottles. Aww. Yeah. That's as heartrending a live moment as Robert Plant's Does Anyone Remember Laughter? That's that's really poignant. Oh. <laughs> Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five are in town to play some gigs at the venue, and Ian Pye gets to knock about with them. They get massively confused by the B-Days in their hotel bathrooms, <laughs> assuming they're for washing babies in, but are dead impressed at the changing of the guard. They tell him that it makes a nice change to play in countries that have gun laws, because in New York, if an ashtray drops on the floor, everyone thinks it's a gunshot, and they all leg it out the building. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would have seen them play on this tour wow. actually. Oh, yeah, the Furious Five. I remember like they did, um, they do a kind of sort of mock stage fight at one point with baseball bats, and it was actually pretty scary. And I was actually oh. for about a, a good minute or so convinced that there was genuinely kicking up on stage. So that record, though, yeah. the Grandmaster Flash that year, the message that I mean, I, I often trace back my love of hip hop to that moment when I'm in a back of a Hillman Inn. Um, on an upward slope in the snowy December of 1982 and the message comes on and my, it, I'm not going to say my whole life started there but in a way it did um, you know in, in a sense that was my first my first signifier that rap music was not just going to be this fad of pop but was just going to be this yes. thing that was amazing by itself yeah I'll never forget that moment Steve Sutherland draws the short straw and ends up in a hotel bar with Bow Wow Wow, who have just finished an acrimonious divorce with Malcolm McLaren and have got a cob on with the music press. What you saw, air quotes, pop stars, asked Sutherland. Well, 
they provide you with a living for a start, hippie, snuffs Matthew Ashman, and the conversation goes downhill from there. Annabella Lewin asks which paper this interview is for. Hippie Weekly, says Ashman. Mm, witty stuff. The male members of the band take turns to call Malcolm McLaren a cunt, brag on about how many women they've nobbed in 1982, and say that Annabella is as dumb as she looks, which causes her to storm out in tears. Ashman goes after her, then comes back, claiming he's just shagged her in the toilets and locked her in, as Sutherland sees her putting her coat on and storming out onto the street. God, it's oh, in between us stuff, isn't it? Yeah. That's fucking horrible, yeah. isn't it, that? That is, that's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's really yeah. horrible. It's, it's funny, the only remotely thing, it's strange, I mean, Steve Sutherland, calling Steve Sutherland a hippie, I mean, in terms of, like, look and demeanour, no one was less hippie than Steve Sutherland on this planet. And yet, at the same time, he was a huge deadhead. Um, so Yeah, it's, it's odd. Steve, so Steve always looked like he should have had, like, 72 whole docks on. He, he yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever had a chippy interview like that where someone just wants to have a go at the music press? Yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing's as bad as this, to be honest, actually. Mm. Um, I don't know, I seem to have a very disarming interview style and uh, I don't seem to sort of wind people up somehow, you know. I did a little bit with the bloke <laughs> out of um, Gay Dad. Right. But that, that interview was a disaster. Who was a music journalist. This is it. Um, but he, he, he took that kind of confrontational... I mean, so, some bands do make that decision. But what they normally can't cope with is when you just answer back, you know, and you tell them to fuck yeah. off, etc. call them yeah. a cunt. They can't deal with that, really. Um, so that normally gets you out of that situation. Yeah. I think one of the most disillusioning things for me when I first went into music journalism, I thought that you could have really good sort of spirited, you know, not necessarily sort of nasty confrontation, but spirited arguments, mm. debates with mm. bands, you know, really mm. get them to define their terms, put them on the spot, whatever, give as good as you got, you know, etc., etc. Right? But you just realise that the, the bands generally just weren't up to it. And, and in the end, you just end up sort of, you know, these, these sort of limp, wretches you know helping them kind of <laughs> yeah. like, limp through the the whole process and sometimes actually if they couldn't come up with anything better than yeah or no you actually say something you know quite detailed that they might want to say about themselves that's kind of quite eloquent and descriptive of them you'd put that in it and if and if at the end of it they went uh, yeah then you'd actually sort of resort to pretending yeah. that they actually yeah, said yeah. it yeah. you know and there's all this stuff about you know they took us out of context and you know we took you out of context and made you look intelligent is what we did yes. 95% <laughs> of the time yeah no absolutely the only complaints I've had post interviews from bands when they've seen the stuff in print is when I've made them sound good you know because they were so yeah, fucking yeah. boring Whereas if you interview, yeah, I don't know. I know. Usually it's, it's the ones who fancy themselves as articulate, actually, who often aren't. And it's your Sean Riders who give you just gold, you know, just naturally. Mm, mm. Yeah. And the heavy metal people, always. Oh, yeah, they're always know. a hoot. Yeah. Paolo Hewitt stays in Brighton to greet the breakout band of 1982, Shalimar. Jeffrey Daniel tells him about how his look has been influenced by British bands like Hazy Fantasia, Culture Club and Fashion, and he's only nicking back the black hairstyles that they originally copped off the Americans. He also expresses bemusement about how British bands love slagging each other off, while American groups like them are all nice religious boys and girls. Seven months later, Daniel will break the news that Shalomar had split up in his next Melody Maker interview. Oh, Shalomar. Here too briefly. I know. I did spend many months of 1982 failing to moonwalk, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) David Frick examines the cultural phenomenon of the year in music, the British Invasion. 
He deduces that while Punk kicked over the apple cart over here, causing labels to sign up anyone and anything in fear of missing out, it did next to fuck all in America, a country still in its 70s hangover, and only the black radio stations are picking up on British electropop. He concludes with the prediction that the taste for British bands will either die on its arse in America very soon, or those bands will be forced to compromise and become the new dinosaurs. I think what's interesting for me, actually, is that he's kind of right in the sense that punk wasn't this kind of seismic BCAD event it was in the UK for various kind of cultural reasons. I always think that, like, you know, retrospectively, I think, you know, the pistols were respected, but possibly, you know, like for Steve Jones's guitar, they were almost like this kind of hard rock continuum, you know, Mm. Gone those Led Zeppelin, the Sex Pistols, Nirvana, as if it was all part of the kind of same thing. You know, the idea that it represented this kind of cultural sort of rupture um, yeah. doesn't see, it doesn't seem to quite mm. occurred. But he's right, isn't he, in predicting that they become the new dinosaurs? Because and, and it's yeah. America in a sense that does that to some of those bands. You know, you go from I don't know, say Depeche Mode eighty one, eighty two, mm. on top of the pops, and then you see them what three, four years later in those documentaries, you know, counting out the thousands of dollars backstage that they're making at these huge, huge stadium shows that they they were playing in Britain before. So he's spot on there. He's spot on there. Especially with Depeche Mode, who I've, I mean, I've just, it's it's astonishing. I've never been able to kind of quite figure out how that happened to them, you know, and what the kind of little shifts and things were that they made, you know, from Mm. the very earliest sort of um, incarnation. Uh, and then to become that, it's, you know, much as I've read about it and looked at it, it's, it continues to mystify me, actually. You know, I hate, I'm not anti-depression mode, I'm not a huge fan, but it's it's extraordinary. Talking of which, Paul Simper meets a flock of seagulls at a pizza land in Liverpool, who are back in town for Christmas, and he sits back as they give it the large one at the local bands who used to look down their noses at them and make cawing seagull noises at them in the street. When asked about their ridiculous amount of success in America, frontman Mike Score puts it down to the fact that, unlike other bands, they put the graft in over there, they're not arte, and they actually love gigging and being in America. When asked about his ambitions for 1983, Score says, a new hairdo. Yeah. Colin Irwin wins the raffle and bags a trip to Barbados to meet its newest and most famous resident, Eddie Grant. He spends his first day looking on in terror as fellow junket member Mike of Roots magazine batters the locals at pool, keeps his distance from Mike Malloy of the Daily Mirror, who has put a dog lead on a massive turtle and fails to get locals to pretend that they're taking it out for a walk for a photo, (laughs) and then watches him get pissed up in a nearby hotel, bum-rushing a local covers band and forcing them to do Proud Mary while he whirls the mic around like Roger Daltrey. In the actual interview, Grant tells him that he thought two-tone was musical masturbation, believes that while The Clash and Rockers' Revenge have covered his songs with respect, other bands have given his songs the musical equivalent of herpes, (laughs) coats down Bob Marley for allowing himself to be publicised as a spliffhead, and calls the rock and roll ethos a pile of crap. (laughs) I'll tell you what, there was no bloody raffle. Every few years, the Eddie Grant trip, you know, to Barbados was something that senior editors availed of in terms of, you know, for senior oh, really? privilege. A few years later, it was Alan Jones, you know, suddenly declaring a, <laughs> right. a love for mainstream reggae that had never been particularly conspicuous <laughs> in his writings, you know, and skanking around, you know, the office. Yeah, I think I'll have this one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
absolutely <laughs> shocking stuff. I'm, I'm surprised by uh, Grant saying that. I mean, if two tone is musical masturbation, that's not a wank I want to have. <laughs> that's not a leisurely wank, is it? That that's that. No, it's frantic. It's frantic, and mm. yeah, you end up shooting your bolt into a pork pie hat. No, thank you. I don't get that at all. <laughs> 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 singles reviews well there aren't any this week but the melody maker single of the year is the message by grandmaster flash in the furious five and the lp of the year is sulk by the associates excellent choices both yeah mm. yeah that's, that's again you know yeah impressed again yeah yeah, yeah. i was i was so snobbish though at this point that the message was almost becoming a cliche you know because it's been so sort of revered you know and um and I also had that thing about fascist groove thing, the Mussolini records like that, you know, and I had to be kind mm. of a sort of vibe to be ob- more obscure than now, you know. Mm-hmm, if you went mm-hmm. the DF, I went the 23 Skidoo, you know. If I <laughs> went with the message by Grandmaster Flash, you know, I went with how are we going to make the black nation rise and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. Painful boy. But, no, excellent suggestions. In the LP review section, well, as you'd expect, there's not much out this week. So the main review is given over to Carol Clark raving about Pissed and Proud, the debut live LP by, quote, the thick-skinned, cider-soaked Walt Disney's of punk, Peter and the Test Tube Babies. The babies are brash and blatant and barbaric, larger than life in a curiously down-to-earth manner. They are, in my humble opinion, one of the most entertaining punk bands in the country, and this album merely confirms it. I've spoken before about what a hero Carol Clark was to me, but but I just want to say, it was the anniversary of her passing recently, and, and I, I had never, ever read the initial piece that got her in at M.M., that you know the diary of a of a Northern Irish music fan, right? Um, that she wrote, and it's just it's a wonderful piece. I could you know I, I read it the other day, and I can just really see why she got hired. Mm. Um, I think she was great. For I think art. it was quite early that wasn't it? Something like nineteen seventy two. She was only a teenager. It was very early, yeah. I mean, and she just she just sent it in on you know she just sent it in almost like a letter. And it's just a brilliant, vivid piece. Uh, A wonderful piece, yeah. Paul Simper takes one look at the track list of the new Al Green LP, Precious Lord, and is horrified to discover that it's tainted with the musk of stars on Sunday. (laughs) But once he tucks in, he's (laughs) delighted to find, quote, a lovely collection of songs which will undoubtedly move some people while simply being enjoyed by others. Mm, Wonderful turn of phrase. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) However, it's a coat down for Main Attraction, the eighth album by Susie Quattro. According to Brian Harrigan, she was never convincing as a rock and roller in her heyday, and now that her tough lady in a tough world approach has been completely superseded by the likes of Girl School, who really know how to rock hard, this LP doesn't help matters. The songs are, without exception, weak and badly pieced together, pallid pop masquerading as something more muscular. Harrigan suggests that her and Len Tucky should check out the new sounds of metal to put some fire back in their veins. (laughs) She should do a cover with a a, a bloke on a grave with his knob out and her hammering stakes into his chest. And Brian Case froths at the mouth with glee at Live at the Albany Empire by the Flying Pickets. 
There isn't a dud here or any number that isn't performed without wit and great musical skill. Buy this album to help you through Christmas and make it a New Year's resolution to see them as soon as possible. The best around. Brian Case, they're predicting next year's Christmas number one. Yeah, not bad. It's funny with Brian Case because he was a staff writer at Melody Maker, but he'd really been sort of hired in its jazz era, you know, when it was still covering a lot of jazz, which it still was in the sort of late 70s. And I think by 1982, really, he was pretty, he's peripheral, really, but he still had this, he was still sitting on this staff job. And he was still there in 1987. Like, and eventually, like you in the 90s, then? Yeah, I was just going to, yeah, exactly, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bed blocker, yeah. Um, he, um, yeah, he, um, but I eventually got his job, yeah. He, finally, um, he went over to Time Out in 1987. And um, when that position became vacant, I um, joined uh, the staff of Melody Maker, staff writer. And as you point out, yeah, yeah, squatted on that. To the utter disgust, I'm sure, of like the likes of Pricey and Taylor. Uh, another decade. <laughs> it's startling how pop um, all of this is. Considering that Melody Maker, yeah. I don't know, like matter of four years before, would have had like, I don't know, fucking Uriah Heap on the cover or something. Mm. It, it's a real change around. In the gig guide. Well, David could have seen The Damned at the Marquee, Iggy Pop at the Venue, Elton John at Hammersmith Odeon, Kajagoogoo at the Brixton Ace, Shack Attack at Wembley Conference Centre, Twisted Sister at the Marquee, or Jabba at the Stockwell Plough. <laughs> but probably didn't. Indeed not. Taylor could have seen Southern Death Cult at the Birmingham Gold Eagle, <laughs> Dire Straits at the NEC, The Meteors at the Powerhouse, or Slade at Birmingham Odeon. Neil could have seen Poison Girls at the Coventry General Wolf and fuck all else. <laughs> Sarah could have seen Ozzy Osbourne at Leeds Queen Hall, Killing Joke at the Leeds Warehouse, Robert Plant at the Warehouse, Blamange at the Sheffield Lyceum, or Show Waddy Waddy at the Scarborough Futurist. Al could have seen Thomas Dolby at the Asylum, Echo and the Bunnymen at Rock City, or gone to Derby to see Simple Minds at the Assembly Rooms, or De Montford Hall in Leicester for White Snake, <laughs> or nipped over to Loughborough to see the Kinks. And Simon could have seen Cliff Richard at Cardiff St David's Hall, possibly with the Gummy Woman. <laughs> in the letters page, Miss MJ Beeson. Headmistress of Copleston High School, Ipswich, writes to Carol Clark regarding her recent interview with the Addicts, pointing out that the Zimbabwe chant on their new LP, Sound of Music, was not written by original frontman Niall Core, as he claimed. Whilst waiting outside the huts to go into lessons, a large group of 13-year-olds developed the chant under the leadership of another lad. Niall was just one of the crowd of bystanders. Sorry, Niall, you borrowed it, and we don't mind in the least bit. As the Romans said, let justice reign, though the skies <laughs> fall. Oh, imagine being shown up by one of your old teachers. <laughs> your paper has been reported as suffering a severe drop in sales recently, says Terence R. Ball of Accrington, and a likely contributory factor springs to mind. You hardly, if at all, cater for those of us out there who are over 16. A very large number of artists from the 60s and 70s are still working live and on record, and very successfully too. Ever seen an empty seat at a Shadows gig, for instance? (laughs) Not your scene. (laughs) 
Yeah, not not catering for artists from the sixties and seventies. I don't suppose uh, Mojo and Uncut get many letters on no. it like these days. <laughs> no, yeah. and all the other letters are too boring to read out, so I won't bother. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Eighty pages, seventy p. I never knew there was so much in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One kicks off at 20 past nine with Bugs Bunny's Looney Christmas Tales, where Yosemite Sam, Porky Pig and Tweety Pie reenact a Christmas carol. Then, after a quick blast of the Womble, Cheryl Campbell, Roger Daltrey's Mrs. and McVicar, reads Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen in Jack and Ore. After Why Don't You, it's Battle of the Planets, Play chess, and then the 1945 Johnny Weissmuller film Tarzan and the Amazons. Isn't that a completely different continent? It is, yeah, it is actually. Yeah. He might as well have a go at the fucking Eskimos while he's at it. How does Tarzan get there? Oh, a very long rope <laughs> and a very tall tree. After the short Leon Errol film, Beware of Redheads, it's News Afternoon with Richard Whitmore, regional news in your area, Pebble Mill at one, and Chigley. At five past two, it's the 1948 adaptation of Anna Karina starring Vivian Lee. Then it's regional news in your area, Play School, Mighty Mouse, Jeremy Irons reading The Small Miracle by Paul Gallico in Jack and Ore, the final part of Huckleberry Finn and his friends, Blue Peter, then Paddington, The Evening News with Richard Baker, regional news in your area again, nationwide, including the final of the nationwide carol competition live from Norwich Cathedral, and they've just finished Tomorrow's World, where Maggie Philbin, Peter McCann, Kieran Prenderville and Judith Han find out how dangerous the seasonings are in your Christmas dinner. I know that. I mean, it's 1982. Not fucking very, I would imagine. (laughs) An excess of parsley in the sauce, perhaps. Sauce of cancer. It's thrillingly 1982, though. I noticed Battle of the Planets there, my God. Of course. I mean, my daughter curses me at the moment because last week I introduced her to the theme to Battle of the Planets, the theme to Jason and the Wheel Warriors, but most earwormy of all, the theme to Ulysses 31. Uh, you know, one of the greats. BBC mm. Two commences at 11 with Play School and then closes down for two and a half hours. At 2pm, it's international cycling from Goodwood, followed by Robert Birchfield, editor-in-chief of the Oxford English Dictionary, in conversation with Bernard Levin in the Levin interviews. This is Christmas, <laughs> for God's sake. We're all sitting at home, needing to be entertained, and they give us this. <laughs> I, I disagree. I disagree. I, I, it was great sometimes when you used to get things like Ken Burns' The Civil War and stuff like that, mm. doing that Christian yeah. Prude at about 11. Yeah, but this ain't to... Ken Burns' The Civil well, no, War, is it? No, no, it's Bernard Levin. But, uh, so it's Bernard. someone who runs a dictionary having a chat. Yeah. True. You know, kids and parents to inherently mistrust those kids who actually look forward to the uh, Royal Society Christmas lectures. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> but they were no help with the vaccine, were they? <laughs> After that... It's Arthur Negus Enjoys, which Ooh. features him looking at some ceramics in Temple Newsome. 
That's followed by part three of the Michael Bryant adaptation of A Christmas Carol. And at five to four, it's the 1959 Peter Sellers film Carlton Brown of the F.O. Then the short film Wings and Things about model aircraft. Then the natural history quiz show What on Earth? The Jeremy Beagle and Clive Doig invention show Eureka. The news and they're about 25 minutes into the Charles Lawton version of Mutineer on the banter. Mm. ITV, start the day at half nine with Sesame Street, then Truman Capote's reminiscences of growing up in small-town America in a Christmas memory, then Mick Robinson makes up some exotic cocktails and party favours in the free-time Christmas show. After Ark Stories, it's Get Up and Go, Sefton, A Household Name, a documentary about the horse that survived the Hyde Park bombing. The News at One, regional news in your area. House Calls, a documentary about three youths studying at the Royal Ballet Lower School called I Really Want to Dance. (laughs) Johnny Mathis Sings Christmas. Take the High Road. The Harlem Globetrotters meet Snow White. <laughs> a Christmas carol concert from the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. Then the news at 5.45 and regional news in your area. Kevin and Glenda have misgivings about their new lodger in Crossroads. Not much happens in Emmerdale Farm. And they're ten minutes into the remake of The Lady Vanishes, starring Elliot Gould, Sybil Shepherd, and Arthur Lowe. Ah, oh, well... Channel 4 is still not bothering to run anything in the day, waiting until a quarter to five to get going with the 1922 Buster Keaton film My Wife's Relations. After Cartoon World, David Wilkie shows us how to do the backstroke without smashing your head into the side of the pool in Splash. (laughs) Then Judge Wapner returns for another episode of People's Court. At half past six, it's How to Succeed with Sand which looks at new technologies in the world of granular material and the issues raised by it. And they're currently midway through Channel 4 News. Oh, how to succeed with sand. Good old Channel 4. It's not exactly festive fair, is it? But, but you know, overall, you could plot a pretty decent, you know, if you skip from channel to channel, give Bernard Levin a a swerve and perhaps the Harlem Globetrotters meeting Snow White. And you've got a pretty decent... No, you want that? That's the fucking highlight of the day, as far as I can see. (laughs) Yeah, you you would lap it. Up, but, you know, but you know, you're not too bad. You got your Bugs Bunny, you got Laurel and Hardy, you got an, uh, the very last ever silent film, which is an odd thing, you know, to have it on ITV. Um, you got Buster Keaton, Carlton Brown of the FO, um, and that remake mm. of um, Lady Vanishes isn't, isn't you know, isn't too bad. It's got Arthur Lowe in it. I'd seen that before, you know. And this is one of the things when I wrote in the book is that, of course. In those, in, even back in 1982, you know, you're sort of sitting scrolling around the four channels of a day, and you'll collide with stuff like Buster Keaton, Laurel yeah. and Hardy, and but you know that happens then, and that was you know what my generation, people younger than me, grew up with. But I mean, like Alicia, you know, my daughter, or whatever. Today, I mean, she'll never collide with those things. And there's this whole no. vast tranche of like history of comedy that is just going unwatched. Laurel and Hardy haven't been on telly since 2004, not mainstream telly. So mm. yeah, it's a real pang of not. Nostalgia, uh, mm. actually, a genuine, genuine wistfulness on this occasion. Yeah, you need that kind of mix of, of boredom and a dearth of channels to stumble across mm. stuff like totally, that, yeah. um, which mm. just doesn't exist anymore. But I have to admit, it's not exactly festive fair across those four no. channels. <laughs> is it? I mean, it's the day before the day before Christmas. Yes. You know, I'd be getting tremendously excited, but I wouldn't be finding that mirrored on the um, on the telly at all. I need to know what happens in Snow White meets the Isle of Globetrotters. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. How does it get resolved? Mm. 
I mean, I presume the Globetrotters are the dwarves kind of characters, perhaps. I've no idea. And if they're the dwarves, Snow White must be fucking enormous. Yes, yes. exactly, yeah. And what happens at the end? Do the do the Harlem Globetrotters climb up a ladder and like slam dunk an apple into the witch's mouth or whatever happens in that? Yeah, yeah. I like the sound of the People's Court. I don't remember it, but it's obviously precursor to Judge Judy. I think that could have been. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was stuff. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was one of the things that um, I was really excited about when Channel Four started up. Let's bear in mind, Channel Four has only been going for about seven weeks or mm. so. If mm-hmm. that. Mm. So, yeah, uh, People's Court was one of the things that was like, oh, look at those crazy Americans. This is what they do. And we could watch it on our telly. Yeah. And then yeah. Channel 4 they started doing the gong show as well, which was fucking brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Hated the British version of it. Yeah. <laughs> Not even Frankie Howard could make a go of it. <laughs> nah. But it did give us that amazing bit of footage of Tony Blackburn dressed as Superman singing Land of Open Glory while roller skating <laughs> and falling on his arse and, and disappointing <laughs> Barbara Windsor again. <laughs> All right, and Pop Crazy Youngsters, I do believe that we peeled off the flimsy plastic covering of the selection box we're about to tuck into. So we're going to leave it there and we're going to come back tomorrow and get stuck into this episode of Top of the Pop. So my name's Al Needham. That's Neil Kulkarna. Cheers, Al. And there's David Stubbs. Yeah, we mate. And we'll be right back here this time tomorrow. So sit tight, listen keenly, stay pop crazed. Chart music. My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to. Keep calm and love Dom Jolly novelty keyring yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. <laughs> the good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I've bought that quite a lot of times. I think. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, oh, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of great apps up now and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Al. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.